Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Salem's Lot, chapter 14, sections 25 to 50, and chapter 15. Let's start the show! Following Callahan's defeat at the hands of Barlow, he leaves Salem's Lot in shame. It is left to Matt, Mark, Jimmy, and Ben to defeat the vampires. While the citizens of the lot continue to fall to the vampires, the heroes come up with another plan, with mixed success. Barlow is defeated, but not everyone survives. Ben and Mark leave the now completely overrun town with their lives, but not much else. We've reached the denouement of the story, Jay. Indeed we have. Lots of build-up and action. Lots of vampires. Uh-huh. Doing lots of vampire stuff. Our heroes trying to push back those vampires and ultimately having a small measure of success as they defeat the main vampire, but at the cost of both Jimmy Cody and Matt. And that's it. Like, Ben and Mark just scoot on out of there after they kill Barlow and try to just get away and leave the horrors behind, thinking that, well, at least we killed Barlow. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to have one goal, at least it's that one. I didn't know if this was going to be like one of those situations where you kill the main vampire and all the vampire spawn fall apart like Arya Stark Night King style. Oh, spoilers. Spoilers for a show that nobody likes anymore. (laughs) But what I found most interesting, because we're really very plot heavy here. Yeah. What I found interesting about this section was King's focus on all the different characters going through different stages of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah. The heroes that we have aren't your typical action heroes who are without flaws and who are perfect in every way and who bravely stand against evil and and go against it and have no doubts. We already could tell that from Callahan that that wasn't going to be this way. But even the rest of our characters each have some failings in some way that impact them. We see Mark crying multiple times in this section, and and rightfully so, right? His parents have died and Mm -hmm. he's facing off against these horrors that are vampires. Jimmy Cody, I think probably because his faith in science has started to be questioned, he gets hysterical and starts laughing and we should get out of here. And, you know, it's up to Ben to sort of get into his face and say, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. But Ben himself has doubts and his wonders like, maybe we should just leave. And then Matt, of course, just outright dies and has a heart attack. But they all have these like little bit of failings that make it a more interesting story because it's not just these strong heroes who are rushing in to defeat the evil vampires. It's not like Blade, who his whole career is hunting vampires, right? Right. And he's got all the weapons and support he needs, plus he's has superpowers because he's half vampire or whatever. These are average people struggling against extraordinary circumstances and doing the best they can. One of them, Matt, is older and very sick because he's just had a a big heart attack and he doesn't want to he's not willing to give up he's not scared away by the circumstances his just his heart gives out yeah and 
Callahan has a similar, like a, a kind of a parallel failure, right? He doesn't want to lose his faith, but something happens that makes him question it for the briefest of moments, and that causes him to be taken out of out of the equation. And uh, Jimmy's just tricked, right? Yeah, he starts to lose it, like you were saying, but ultimately he comes back around. He's as brave as anybody in in this situation, but he's fooled by the masterful preparations of Barlow. Right. But I think like the PTSD part of this is is real and it's important. And it's not the most important thing that King was trying to say with this story and this book, but I think it's something that has been on his mind because he lived through this period and just before writing this book, when a lot of things like he talked about in Hearts in Atlantis. Yeah. That's what he was living as a college student and the anti-Vietnam War thing and then the post-Vietnam War experience in America. These things were happening concurrently with his writing of this story. So I think some of it was seeping in things like war veterans and how they deal with this type of thing. These are people going to war and having war-like experiences and how they deal with it in the moment and how they deal with it after that moment has passed, if they survive it, they're, they're different people. They're changed forever. And we see that in all of them. Yeah. Parkins Gillespie, he's maybe one of the more focused examples of this because he is himself a war veteran. He was in the Korean War. And what he sees going on in his town is enough to make him just kind of snap right back to whatever terrible experiences he had there. And he's just like, nope, I'm out. I'm supposed to be one of the heroes of this story. My role here is sheriff. I'm a protector. I have the authority. I have the training. I have the intelligence. But I also can't handle this, right? Right. And I'm going away. Sorry. There's a Vietnam veteran. It's Reggie Sawyer. You know, similar experience. King talks about how he, Reggie Sawyer, had a very, um, he was a very light sleeper when he was in Vietnam because he had to be, right? Like any noise, you'd get up and be ready to go. And he prides himself on being able to get into a regular sleep pattern back once he got back to the States. But when he hears a noise outside, he immediately falls back into that situation. He gets up, he gets his gun, and he's a soldier again. Mm -hmm. But it does, his training does him no good because his wife's ex lover is now a vampire and having a shotgun against that is not going to help. And he, end, he ends up falling to it. So even though you've got sort of those two sides of the equation, like one guy saying, nope, I'm out. I have no courage. The other guy's showing some courage. Either way, you fail. Yeah. You don't have any, any sort of success. And you're right. I don't think that King is making a whole big point of this is the important part of this book. It's all about PTSD and how people deal with trauma in, in these situations. But I do think, to your point, it's seeping through the society. Um, we got a little bit of that last episode when we talked about Mark Petrie's father, who he wasn't happy about the 70s anymore because of the economic malaise and the way the country mm -hmm. was going and, and how he thought that the 80s were going to be better because he'll be able to put his economic pieces in place. And it's sort of the same thing here where all these people are just, it's the culture of the time that King obviously picks up on and it seeps through and it just shows up in this book. Yeah. And there is a, a really nice callback at the towards the end of this where we get that quote from the emperor of ice cream again 
it's a point where Ben is sort of totally losing it. And he's like, let B be finale of seam. And he even misquotes it the same way that he misquoted it earlier. And who said that? Matt? Matt's dead. Susan's dead. Miranda's dead. Wallace Stevens is dead too. Like, yee <laughs> like, like, I can't, like, I'm flipping out. My, my brain is just beyond my capacity right now. But I don't know he snaps back and wins the day. Yeah, for the moment. We'll we'll see what happens, but yes, they they do, and we'll transition now into the other side of the equation. Is that up to this point we have had vampires who are sort of picking people off one by one, mm-hmm. and while there are a number of vampires in town, in this section we see that the majority of the town is now vampires. Like there's an onslaught on Salem's Lot at this point, as we see these vampires just attack and attack and attack, and in New and unique ways, I would say. They're getting smarter. They're getting more strategic. And in some ways, maybe getting more eccentric. <laughs> <laughs> but the vampires are, are, it seems like they're they're figuring out who and what they are as vampires a little bit, like their, their own nature. Uh, up to this point, they've sort of just been shambling almost zombies without conscious thought or planning and certainly no cunning. Mm. But by this point, many of them have become quite cunning. <laughs> They're using like the modern technology of the day to work around the the rules of vampirism. You must be invited into the home. So they're like, oh, I'll call you on the telephone <laughs> and say, can I come over? And you say, sure. And then I show up and I'm a vampire and you've already invited me over by, by phone, I right. guess. Right. <laughs> And a little bit more tricky in who they're picking as well to yeah. to attack. And we've seen some of this before, right? So Jimmy Glick would try to go after Mark Petrie early, and Susan comes back for Ben. But here we see all the children who this bus driver had tormented mm-hmm. all on the bus and attacking it, you know, honking the horn to get him to come out. And then when he comes out, the children just sort of swarm on top of him and all, all get their pieces of it. and. It's a different way of looking at it. Like, oh, we're going to get ours too. You know, like you, you did this to us. We're going to do it to you. Yeah. It was a strange momentary switching of sides and perspective for, for us, the audience. We have always been from page one of this book on the side of the humans against the vampires. Right. But here in this brief moment with the bus driver, we get a little bit of background on him just enough to paint him as this sort of overly authoritarian guy who just seems to hate kids and and he's and he's done all the wrong things in the worst ways and sort of seems like he's getting his comeuppance and and the vampire kids are like now we get our vengeance now right or now we get our revenge on this jerk of a bus driver like okay (laughs) sure but that isn't the perspective of our heroes no so why why are we spending any time here showing like all right, finally, the vampires are getting their way. Yay. There's a couple instances like that where Mark, reminiscing about his father, says, you know, my father would have been a good vampire. He he might have been as good as Barlow at some point. Uh-huh. He was always trying his best, and he was good at whatever he did. And I have a feeling he would have been a good vampire. Too bad he didn't get that chance. Uh-huh. And then Parkins sort of has a backhanded compliment about Nolly. Nolly's a vampire, too, I suppose. Well... He'd probably be pretty good at it, I guess, you know. 
he, he was one of these guys who always wanted power that he couldn't use in Salem's lot. But hey, now he's a vampire. I guess he gets to do what he wants. Mm-hmm. But when we switch back to the, the original perspective of like, it's the heroes versus the vampires. It's, it's in the final conflict of Ben and, and Mark against Barlow. And they finally figure out where he is and they finally track down his his lair and get to him just before the sun sets in this, you know, wonderfully, you know, suspenseful stretch of the book. And Ben succeeds. He he kills Barlow, right? Yep. And it's this long drawn out thing of his body sort of slowly vanishing and disintegrating, and Ben feels this force rush past him as the the body finally goes away there's a moment when like barlow's jaw is still trying to like bite at ben and so it's like is barlow really dead is it that he's so old of a vampire that there's just no way to fully vanquish him it's like the stake through the heart it destroyed his corporeal form but what's what's left might still come back is that possible so just to put it in perspective they kill barlow and then Ben goes back later, right? This is to go get Jim's, Jimmy's body. He looks in there and he sees the jaw and the jaw tries to bite him. And yeah. So I get the sense that all that's left in there is like this jawbone. And if that didn't disintegrate, I mean, I suppose like what would have happened? The jaw nicks Ben's arm and gets a little bit of blood and that's enough to start to regenerate the rest of his form. I mean, possibly, I mean, they did not go through the ritual that they did with Susan's body, right? Where they took the body turned it upside down, dropped it in a, in a running river. And and that was Mm -hmm. the final end of, of Susan. And she's definitely not coming back from that. So I do get the sense that, you know, maybe he is that powerful that he could come back. And I was thinking of the Watchmen comic when after John Osterman gets zapped and dissolves, he sort of comes back pieces at a time. And I got the sense that maybe Barlow could do that too. Like if he gets just enough blood, it'll just the right amount. So eventually he will grow back into his original form. And Rice kind of covers a little bit of this territory here and there too. Like there's a a time when Lestat basically doesn't feed for a hundred years or something, and he just buries himself in the raw earth and allows his body to become to uh, effectively disintegrate. And then when he awakens, he's like little more than a skeleton, and then he starts feeding off whatever blood he can get his hands on, and each drop of blood reforms his himself until he's back to the young beautiful Lestat again and I kind of feel like that's what could happen with Barlow and the jawbone and I wanted Ben to go in there with like a mortar and pestle crush that jawbone into dust mix it with wet concrete let it solidify and then drop that block of concrete into a raging river and then maybe maybe we don't need to worry about Barlow anymore. Yeah, I think that that might do it. That might just, in fact, do it. But yeah, until then, this is the carry hand coming out of the grave, right? Mm-hmm. King leaving his options open. Yeah. The evil is never completely vanquished. While we're still talking about the end of Barlow, part of the, the way that King leads us through the plot is that Mark notices blue chalk on Barlow's hand. And that's like the the murder mystery underneath this this story that drives part of the storyline. And do you think that Barlow, this character who has been 
demonstrated and described as being very wise, very experienced, and very intelligent, would make this mistake to reveal traces of his location of where he's hiding by having chalk on his hands? Or was this purposeful so that he could do things like set traps by, by removing staircases and setting up knives? Yeah, I don't think it was intentional. And the reason I think that is our heroes at first think, oh, he's got chalk on him. He's probably at the old schoolhouse that's abandoned. That'd be a perfect place for them to hide. And that's where they think mm -hmm. he's hidden. And it isn't until Jimmy, he sees Ben working in the workroom and sees the three fluorescent lights and he's reminded of what a pool hall might look like. And then he makes the jump to, oh, Ava Miller has an old pool table in her basement that she's been meaning to get rid of and she didn't. And maybe he got the chalk from there because wouldn't that be a perfect place to hide? And so I think there's just too many jumps of logic that Barlow would not know that the vampire hunters had to be able to make that mistake in quotes, to get them to come to him. Mm -hmm. Barlow is weakest during the day, and that's when he can be attacked. The only thing that can potentially prevent that is looking into his eyes, which Mark makes the mistake of doing and is briefly turned into a, into, into a thrall that attacks Ben. And so I don't think that he would give even the slightest hint to potentially give away his location. So I do think that this was just uh, an unforced error on his part. Okay. Uh, you, you've convinced me. I think you're right for those two very good reasons. One, there's no way he could have set a trap with such uh, unlikely information, and he wouldn't risk it. That would not be his trap. His trap would be, I'm going to lure them to a place where I am not. Right. And have a false basement set of stairs and, and yada yada. Yeah. So Barlow just messed up. And maybe he thought he was safe because... Why would anybody know about this pool table? Right. I think that that's it. Yeah. But while we're here, can we talk about this? Because you've alluded to the fact that there's this false staircase with knives put into plywood at the bottom so that the knives are sticking up. And that's what causes Jimmy to die, right? Because mm -hmm. they've cut the power. So he flicks the light switch. Nothing's doing. He takes two steps and boom, no more stairs. He falls impaled on dozens of knives. This, I think I might have hinted at it in earlier episodes, this has been one of the scenes of Stephen King's that has stayed with me the longest since I've read it. Uh, there are certain ones, uh, when Larry Underwood's in the tunnel escaping New York, and in The Stand is one, in Survivor Type, the doctor cuts off his arms and legs, that short story, and eats himself, uh -huh. and this scene, when Jimmy Cody falls onto these knives and kills himself. like These are ones that I must have read at just the perfect time in my youth that have stuck with me and have sort of scared me ever since then, that I have a fear of going down into a dark basement if the lights aren't on, because I'm worried that there's not going to be stairs there. <laughs> I must have built this up in my memory so much because it doesn't even happen on the page. It happens totally off screen, right? Mm. Mark's in the other room looking for a flashlight and he hears that, ah, and the guy falls. And then it's like 15 minutes later and we come to with Mark has crawled out of the basement because he went down there to try to help Jimmy and he saw that he was dead. So. It's not even described or or shown or seen. And I've built this up into this giant scary moment in my life that has stayed with me. I think that tells you something about either my overactive imagination or Stephen King being such a good writer. Because when I got there, I'm like, I can't believe this isn't even on the page. Yeah, it's the, the power of imagination. You definitely painted a, a such a complete picture that you remembered it like it happened yeah. or, or that you saw it. 
There's also the possibility that you saw the miniseries and maybe the miniseries showed it happen. And I don't know because I didn't see it. I saw it, but I don't remember it enough to know that if I don't think that that's what stayed with me. I think it was King's writing that stayed with me because I don't have an image of it in my mind. Our section that we read ends with chapter 15, which is entitled Ben and Mark. This section is really focused on Ben. There's not a lot of Mark. They, they, they talk a little bit about their drive out of Salem's lot. They get a hotel room to stay the night. Ben starts the facade that is Ben and son, so that that's what mm-hmm. they're going to start to travel as. And Ben leaves Mark in the hotel overnight or the next day so that he can go back into Salem's lot, recover Jimmy's body, bury it and Mark's parents uh, together, and, and gather up his book, burn it, and then get out of town. And, and that's sort of where it ends. And then we're probably jumping to where the prologue was, I'm guessing, where they make this trek across the United States. So that's important, but I think more important is their relationship in the section just before that, in the end of chapter 14. Yeah. When this becomes, I think, the part of their relationship, and a lot of it is the shared trauma that we talked about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the first time that we really see Ben and Mark together for a decent amount of the book. Like we had talked earlier about, like, when are they going to get together? When are they going to get together? Because we know they do. And this is it. And their relationship is sort of this mix of trauma and brutality. And then love on the other side, like they both say to each other before heading into into the basement, I love you. And, you know, they're working together to move the chest and they both have the glow of holy water and, and are able to do this. But earlier on, they're both having doubts about what to do and how to do this and whether or not they should run away. And that's one of the times when Mark starts to break down and says, I can't do this. I can't go back in there. I saw Jimmy died, That all this stuff. And Ben really has to play the tough love card with him Mm -hmm. almost to the point of pushing Mark away. I would say like, think about your parents. They killed them. Like it just seems overly tough for a kid. He barely knows that he just met the day before. In fact, I mean, first he's cruel to an extreme and then he's violent. I struggle with this because they have this very close relationship. They love each other. They're, they are like father and son, but you know, I wonder, did King properly establish this this relationship that they have? You know, he says they have a bond, but I don't know that he's shown it happen, like shown that this bond form. Like you just said, Ben says all of these terrible, hurtful things to Mark to, to simply to motivate him to go along with their plan to kill Barlow. Yep. He probably thinks he has no other way, no properly expedient way to get Mark back on track. But it's still, it still cuts deep, right? Very deep. In that moment when Barlow makes eye contact with, with Mark and makes him like try to kill Ben, Ben has to beat the crap out of Mark. He has to knock him unconscious so that he will stop trying. And so like when Mark wakes up, he's like, his face is all cut up, his lips are split, everything like that, because Ben's just been punching him in the face. So we've got this guy, they've known each other for, we. I think we figured it out, like basically, like two days and one night. Yeah. It, or maybe two days and two nights. And in those two nights, they have both experienced terrible, terrible horrors. And they've also been like, pretty terrible to each other. Yeah. In some ways. And... Now they're just like best friends. And I just, I, 
I don't know, maybe that shared experience, as terrible as it was, was enough to just permanently weld their psyches to one another in a way that ended in a kind of positive way, like in this this love for each other. But I I sort of feel like King didn't quite span the distance. I don't know. Do you agree? Yeah, I think they don't spend enough time together in the book to to really build that up enough that they're able to say I love you. Yeah. That seems a bridge too far for a you know an almost teenager and a young adult to just say, okay, like here here's where we're at now. It might have been different if it's Ben and Mark who go out searching for vampires, but it's Jimmy and Mark. So you know most of right. that day is Jimmy and Mark spending time together, not Ben and Mark. Ben's just He's making steaks. He's lathing. He's using his lathe to make steaks. Like it's just sort of, if the two of them were together, then you might see where it, it it had built up more. But it is somewhat forced, in my opinion, here. Which quick side note: How do you use a lathe to make a steak? Like you have to have like both ends fastened, right? If you got like a a length of a baseball bat on a lathe, it's fastened at both ends, and you're gonna sharpen, sharpen, sharpen until one point doesn't connect anymore. Is that gonna work? I don't know. You're embarrassing me now, Jay, because I'm showing my lack of manliness to know that <laughs> I don't know how any of this stuff works. I was in wood shop in seventh grade and I barely made it through. My grandfather was a machinist and had all of these tools, wood lathes, metal working materials. He had a whole business that he made parts for rocket ships and tanks and aerospace stuff. And I have no idea how any of that crap works. And he would be so embarrassed in me that I sit at a computer all day and type. So I'm the wrong person to ask. Don't be so hard on yourself. I know if it's a shorter thing, like if you're making a bowl, then you could attach it at one end. But something longer, like a banister bar or a, a stake to stab a vampire, I would think you need to hold it up the fence. So once you got to the point of it being sharp, it would like, spin around and fly off and stick into the ceiling, you know, and possibly your your own head. Dangerous job that Ben took on. Yeah, it's sort of like when I used the router in seventh grade to make my napkin holder. And they always said, always go one direction in the router, because if you go the other way, the wood went flying across the room. And sure enough, I did it the wrong way. Yeah, I have no skills when it comes to any of this machinery (laughs) stuff. I have soft, weak, doughy hands. Yeah, well, it's not a bad thing. You know, it's not objectively bad. It just means you don't, you don't do that type of work for a living. But when the v- vampire apocalypse comes, I will be one of the first to go, I have a feeling. You will not be legend. <laughs> I will not be legend. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, one of the characters we have not discussed yet in this section is... Father Callahan, and I think we should do it in terms of our Dark Tower thinnies. So our last section ended with Callahan being defeated by Barlow and sort of slinking out into the night. And here we get to see him two or three more times in little sort of interstitials as he tries to get back to the church and is himself smoted because he is now unclean. And then he goes to a bus station slash cafe to get his ticket. And where's he going? Anywhere the road will lead him, man. Just I'll take the next bus whenever it's leaving next, and I'll take it as far as it goes. And that's on the way to New York City. 
And then we see him later on bribing the bus driver to get him a pint of whatever. And he will spend up to $30. Keep the change, buddy. Just get me a pint of whatever rot gut you can so I can start dulling the pain that is within me. This is Callahan beginning his journey across the back roads of our country, both in our Keystone Earth and, as we learn later on, outside of our Keystone Earth. Yeah. And I think his first motivation is to try to wash the taste of Barlow's blood out of his mouth. Because to that moment, he can still taste it. It's like, on top of everything else he's just gone through, he still has like the poison of Barlow yeah. on his tongue. You know, maybe the rock gut is just the right medicine for that. Yeah, even his smoting, it doesn't hurt anymore from the burn. It's just the pain of knowing that he is no longer welcome in the church. Maybe mm-hmm. wonder a little bit about, but in Colbrin Sturgis, he has a church, right? Yeah. It's just not sacred ground, I guess, because he's in it. No, I think that Callahan's journey back to God is one that he needed to find himself. And he went on a long journey. He was, you know, Bruce Banner for a long time. <laughs> and he was sort of rediscovering himself, rediscovering his connection to the world and worlds, and rediscovering his faith. Mm. So by the time he found himself in Colibrin Surges, I think that's why he stopped moving, because he found a place where he could stay, and he found a place where he could build a church, build a congregation, and spread Catholicism to the locals. So I think he had healed that wound and mm. he was ready to or he had already begun again as a as a priest. Everybody in town thought of him as that. He thought of himself as that. His housekeeper thought of him as that. Yeah. She herself had fully converted to Catholicism. Callahan used her as part of his shield against the argument of Mordred and ending the pregnancy and everything. So it took him time. It was less about like some magical reversal or a spell undone or, you know, some new transfusion of holy water and in, in, or something like that. It was, I think he just, it, it's faith. And so it had to come from within and it, and he found a way to, to get there. That's how I see it. You could see why King wanted to continue the story with him though. Because he is the character that is at his lowest point. And what's interesting about a character is seeing not only maybe the downfall of a character, but also the rising up of that character. Mm-hmm. And so when he is literally in this valley, that's probably the character he, he being king, maybe A, felt some empathy towards as somebody who was also an alcoholic king and Callahan. Mm-hmm. But then also like, what more could I do with this story with this character? To, to see how he rises and how he potentially redeems himself because he doesn't in Salem's Lot, obviously. Right. He doesn't even have an opportunity to. No, he's just he just scurries out of town and is like, I'm done. Like, I'm not going to be involved in this. I just need to get away and drink myself to death. Mm-hmm. Any other thinnies in this section, Jay? Well, I talked a lot about Barlow's jaw earlier, and... uh but I think as a from a thinny perspective, it was a lot like or it reminded me a lot of the jawbone that Roland found in the the space underneath the way station. Yeah. In the gunslinger. That was a jawbone that somehow was it had maybe the last vestiges of some demonic possession or a connection to the person it was while it was still alive. 
it had a kind of power. It was a, a, a charm, and that's why he kept it with him. Roland replaced that jawbone with the one that he thought was Walter's at the end of the book. Yep. So it seems like jawbones sort of kind of mean something in the world of the Dark Tower. They have a, a perhaps an extra magical property, and the fact that that was the last bit of Barlow that seemed to have any bit of life left makes sense. So Roland, if I remember correctly, takes that jawbone and stuffs it in his back pocket of his jeans. Yep. I would not suggest that <laughs> that Ben Mears does the same thing with Barlow's jawbone. No, he'd get, he'd get a nice bite on the butt cheek there. Yes. Uh, he did that. For sure. Another Dark Tower thinny, and this is like maybe one of the the strongest thinnies that we've come across in this book, aside from the character of Callahan himself, is when Ben is chopping on the door. He's chopping down the door to Barlow's hiding place in the sub-basement, the root cellar. And he has splashed himself with holy water in the church, and he's glowing in the darkness, and the axe is glowing. And the line that, that is in the book is, he was a man taken over possessed and mark saw without knowing or having to know that the possession was not in the least christian the good was more elemental less refined it was ore like something coughed up out of the ground in naked chunks there was nothing finished about it it was force it was power it was whatever moved the greatest wheels of the universe when i read that i was like holy shit it's the tower yeah, it's it's like King was writing the tower before he he was writing the tower. Like, I know he kind of started that story before he wrote this one, but this feels like yep. he was thinking of these ideas all at once. And it's great. I love it. He's also explaining how Barlow can be a creature that is older than the Catholic Church, but affected by its powers and its symbols, but also can see around their corners mm. and not be affected by them. A king very nicely wraps everything together and explains it, I think, in this line too, because the Catholic Church symbols, the cross, matters to Barlow because of what Callahan brings to that, what, what all these characters do. It, it's it's a, a weapon against evil. And in these terms here, Organized religion is a polished, more finished, more refined version of the, the power of the white. It's a force of good, and it's just like, it's one facet of a larger jewel, and that jewel is the tower. It all works. Yeah. So. It works very nicely, yeah. I somehow missed this when I was reading it, and then when you pointed out, I'm like, oh my god, you're absolutely right. This is totally the tower yeah. on, on the page. Okay, well, we want to remind people that we have a Patreon, and that Patreon uh, is a way for you to support our show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, uh, including bonus podcast episodes, which will be starting here in January. So um, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more about how you can support us. Yes, absolutely. And if you are a patron, you will benefit in other ways beyond the bonus podcast. You'll also get your name set on the show. Uh, you'll have your name listed on our website. And depending on which level of patron you are, you also get some other bonus things like 
helping us decide which books we cover next and perhaps getting some swag, those sorts of things. So if you are inclined to support the show and want to help us, uh, you know, pay the cost of running, running this, uh, hobby of ours, please do so and, uh, join that community and, and be part of, uh, a few extra bonus items as a way for us to say thanks. And another great way to say thanks to us and spread the word about the show is to do podcast reviews on your favorite platform. And we were able to get two recent reviews on iTunes over the last few weeks. And I'll read the first one, Jay. It is from P. Turtle, who it titles this, My Wonderful Friends. We both thought this one was sort of interesting. I have not actually read the Dark Tower books yet. My girlfriend is getting them for me around New Year's as a present. Congratulations, P. Turtle. That's a good present. I find that Jay and Sean are insightful with their analyses and chapter breakdowns. It is a nicely put together podcast. I listen to you guys while cooking, cleaning, and on my way to work. And then there's some uh, stuff that's better left private. And then keep up the good work. So thanks a lot, P. Turtle. You you don't want to read it? All right, I'll read it. (laughs) Just a little embarrassing. P. Turtle says, I've even discussed the possibility of playing the podcast with my boo while making love. Well, if there's anything that I can guarantee is sure to turn off anybody, it's listening to my voice <laughs> while making love. P. Turtle, uh, we really appreciate the review. We, we're glad that you are enjoying the heck out of our show. And by all means, listen to us whenever you do anything you enjoy. I'll just try not to think about what our listeners are might or might not be doing when 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 they hear my voice or sean's voice but to be fair i have a sister-in-law who likes listening to the podcast when she's falling asleep so that might say something else about our show that seems a lot more likely yeah (laughs) once it's out in the world we can't we can't control how you what you do with it how how you choose to enjoy our show is entirely up to you the other review we got was from walter johansson And his review is titled, It's All 19. It is all 19. It is. Hey guys, love the show. Can't get enough of the Dark Tower connections to the King universe. You guys should dive into The Talisman and its sequel, Black House. The latter is loaded with Dark Tower thinnies. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Walter Johansson. We're glad that you're enjoying the show and uh, sounds like you're especially enjoying our continuing adventures of connected books to the dark tower we will continue on that that journey and those books that you suggest are definitely somewhere on our list so yes well i think it's time for fun stuff which is another fan favorite in addition to dark tower thinnies and i'll point out the first one that we both noted jay which is that there's a john snow in salem's lot yeah does he know anything (laughs) he knows nothing yeah, apparently this Jon Snow is a very old guy at the time of the story because he could barely walk down to breakfast table with his arthritis. Yeah, you know, maybe after all those cold winters in the north of Maine, arthritis will catch up with you. I have thought about putting a giant wall there. <laughs> just just south of the Maine border? Yeah, just to protect us from everything north. You never know what wildlings live up there. There is this uh, really great line. At three in the morning, the blood runs slow and thick, and slumber is heavy. The soul either sleeps in blessed ignorance of such an hour, or gazes about itself in utter despair. There is no middle ground. At three in the morning, the gaudy paint is off that old whore, the world. 
She has no nose and a glass eye. Gaiety becomes hollow and brittle, as in Poe's castle surrounded by the Red Death. Horror is destroyed by boredom. Love is a dream. I just, just great. Great writing. King's just doing, just knocking it out of the park again. And uh, this is just another example of when he's just going off on a, on just like a little tear, talking about the town, setting the scene. Just really like it. Yeah, it's good. We talked a little bit about Parkins Gillespie earlier. He almost wants to be Jon Snow. Like when Ben and, and Mark go to tell him what's going on, he's like, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear anything. And when they start pushing, he's like, he's a vampire, ain't he? Just like in all the comic books they used to put out 20 years ago. And of course, what Parkins Gillespie is talking about here is the fact that in the 50s, there were a plethora of horror comics. In fact, horror comics were probably one of the biggest selling comics of the time. Superheroes had actually declined in the 50s. And what was taking their place were humor comics like Mad Magazine, uh, but mostly horror comics. Oh, really? And romance comics, oddly enough. Romance comics, horror comics, and war comics. But the the horror comics were the ones that were really sort of pointed out because there were constantly competition to up and up and up and get more horrifying. And of course, there was a lot of kids buying these comic books. And there was a man named Frederick Wortham who went on and on about how comic books were what was causing all the problems in the world in the 1950s. Juvenile delinquency was caused by comics. And so what do we have to do? We have to ban these comics. And so he got in front of Congress and he went on and on about how horrible these comics were, especially when there was a lot of eyeball imagery and the comics code was put into place to limit what these comic books could do. And it was just... I did not know all of that stuff about comics. (laughs) Check out Seduction of the Innocent when you have a chance. Listen to my new comics book podcast coming soon. (laughs) On a lighter note, as you mentioned earlier, Ben is glowing with the holy water when he's using his axe. It just reminded me of The Last Dragon, which is a movie that probably not many of you have seen, but if you get a chance, watch it. Got some uh, great Bruce Lee kung fu action and a lot of glowing hands cool stuff nice that's all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thanks jay thank you links to all of our social media is available in the show notes if you like the show please rate us on apple podcasts to support the show visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower next episode join us as we finish our reading of salem's lot reading the epilogue and then wrapping up the book as a whole For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Yeah, you will not be the main character in the Richard Matheson story. I I will be Vincent Price, uh, an already vampire, as opposed to Charlton Heston being legend. That's right. Or Will Smith. Or Will Smith. Depending on your age. And sheer acting talent.